Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Outside the Box. And I'm with my good friend, who I don't get to hang out nearly enough with, which is Pratik Vaidya. Pratik, how's it going, man? Hey, Ben, doing great. Definitely don't want to hang out enough. You being out in Knoxville makes it a little bit harder, I think. But no, I'm glad to be on here. Well, you, you get um, you, you get to hang out with with people who are who are very close to me uh, on a yes. on an everyday basis. You know, one of course is is Dr. Rogers, and and then you're you're with Andy quite a bit. Uh, I, I need to get up to the Tri Cities more often than I do. Uh, how are things going up there? Great. Now I'm thinking about it. it's been a year since I've been here, and I love the Tri Cities actually. It's beautiful. It's green. The people are always so nice. I'm enjoying my time here a lot. That's amazing, man. That makes me so happy to to, to hear. And and you know, before we hit record today, uh, you mentioned to me something that you talk a lot about with your patients, and and that is reversing type two diabetes. Um, real quick, before we get into that, because it sounds that sounds crazy. I know there's probably listeners and people watching on YouTube who are like, what? Reversing diabetes. Exactly. And, you know, so we're going to walk through that, but give us a little bit of your own history with, with diabetes. So, you know, people can kind of understand contextually yeah. uh, who they're listening to. Yeah, of course. So in clinic, I see a lot of patients, especially they're always concerned about having diabetes, getting diabetes later in the future, or they have a big genetic component where their parents are both diabetic and they just think that's their fate. It's, in, it's inevitable. They're going to end up getting diabetes. I personally have diabetes myself. I have type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune condition. I developed it about 10 years ago when I was an undergrad, starting right before going to med school. And it kind of was a really weird time at that time. I had a lot of stress and we really don't know what caused a type 1 or autoimmune condition, whether, whether it was a virus or a high-stress issue that caused a mutation. But I've been living with it and controlling my diabetes pretty well for the last 10 years. And a lot of it's related to more lifestyle management and actually understanding what you're doing, what you're eating, maybe kind of fighting against you or understanding that the weight gain you're having is actually reversible. A lot of things that come with type 2 diabetes is going to be more based on lifestyle changes. That modification to what your daily schedule is, what you're eating on a day in and day out basis, and then kind of narrowing down what you can make an actual better overall lifestyle goal is. The goal is not to change your whole life where you need to do this, 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 and this, or I have to get cut out all the carbs in my life where I can't really enjoy my life or have fun. I can't go to restaurants where it's not the goal. The goal is to still live within your means, finding better alternative choices when you go to the grocery store, not getting a lot of frozen food. And living in 2022, it's actually made it much, much easier as keto has become a very common thing. And I'm not a big fan of keto dieting, but using some of the tools that they use in keto diets is a very great way of just making those small changes to life and reversing those aspects of diabetes. Is, you know, speaking from, from your experience with, with having type 1 diabetes, um, is, is because I'm trying to, to relate the two, type 1 with type 2, you're treating a lot of type 2 diabetics. Um, are sure. you saying mm -hmm. that a lot of the lifestyle change that you're encouraging for people with type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes should be similar to how um, you go about your daily life uh, as someone with type 1 diabetes? I would say yes, correct, because as we know, type 1 is an autoimmune condition. 
even though I'm never going to able to get rid of this disease itself, type two is something you could really do reverse and actually get better at and making sure that he doesn't really have to come back itself, even though you have some genetic components against it. Um, a lot of it comes with just healthy eating itself. Mm -hmm. And I even explain to patients when they get that Cleveland heart lab, that really good holistic blood test to kind of go through all that data. A lot of it's going to come with, you know, making the changes to what they think is already healthy. I eat fruits every day. I eat drink smoothies all the time. I feel like it's very, very low carb. But one thing I always tell my patients to try out is getting a continuous glucose monitor, even if they're not diabetic, just to get a good idea, what does your life really look like in the in the means of getting data of your blood sugar itself. It'd be really shocking sometimes. People think like, I eat low carbs, it's fine. It's not the problem. It's just, you know, I have a genetic issue. And when they put the sensor on, they look throughout the day, they're like, I'm spiking blood sugars right after dinner, right after lunch all the time. I didn't realize eating a banana once every day in the morning is what's causing this numbers to start to go up. They kind of find out genetically, they're probably not having a hard time breaking down these fructose that comes from the sugar from uh, fruits itself. So I tell patients all the time that it is reversible. You just need to narrow in on the core issue, what the problem is. So when you're, when you're mentioning to, to a patient, you know, you're saying, Hey, you know, you're, you either have prediabetes or you, you already have type two and you're mentioning we can reverse this. Um, it, it sounds like the first thing you go through with the patient is, is this diet modification as well as adding a, a, a continuous glucose monitor to to see, you know, what foods are spiking your blood sugars. So is the first thing that you're doing is trying to manage those blood sugar spikes. Is that kind of what your what your goal is um, initially? Correct. So the way I kind of see it is, it's educating the patient themselves. When they get to see the data themselves and not coming to me all the time to see like, what exactly am I looking at? It's very easy for them to look at homes like, I could definitely see the spikes here, here, and here. It's just mm -hmm. like, I did not really lie. Seeing that visually for a lot of patients makes the connection of that, you know what, what I'm doing is not correct, actually. And I even tell patients, I give them a lot of tips what I even do and what to make, make sure my diabetes stays in control. When it comes to type 1 and type 2, yes, I'm going to have to be on insulin for the rest of my life. For type 2, you don't always have to go to insulin. But if we're not managing that early in life or trying to reverse those trends, it could get to the point where they're going to be on insulin. And the way it kind of works to understand that is whenever you have a high carb meal it causes insulin itself in the pancreas kind of to spike up drastically when insulin spikes up drastically so does the hunger hormone ghrelin ghrelin is that hunger snacking boredom horm hormone and that when that gets out of whack it takes a while for that hormone to naturally come down to normal levels when they see that on their continuous glucose monitor and see that huge spike as their blood sugar goes up insulin that means insulin's working harder than it really should be to bring that blood sugar back down to normal which is normally either two hours after eating or eight hours of fasting, it should come back down to under 100. If you're looking at that meter and looking at that graph, you're like, my blood sugar even two hours after is about 115. You're, that kind of tells you your insulin's working way harder than it should be to bring it back down. And that kind of should clue you in thinking, you know what, I probably had something during that lunch or during that dinner that I probably shouldn't have. You could easily see that when people have a huge sweet tooth and get dessert after dinner, people that have created this lifestyle that after dinner, I always need to have something sweet before I go to bed. And when they see that on their actual CGM sensors, they're like, yeah, when I have ice cream, it makes a perfect sense that my blood sugar is high early in the morning then too. It just never really recovers. I start with patients getting that lab, that Cleveland Heart Lab, because they'll see those numbers. They're like, you know what? I'm pre-diabetic. The goals are to change 
that right away, not wait till you get to diabetes, where I need to put the patient on medications like metformin or Farsiga or any of those other meds just to get them under control. The goal should be starting that lifestyle, create those good routines earlier before they even get to that level. And if you are already diabetic, you've seen your other physicians, there are a lot of great medications on the market itself that could really help decrease your weight, decrease the things that a lot of people come in and tell me, I just always crave carbs. I'm always hungry for sugars. There's a lot of great meds that can really reverse those as well. Now, once a patient gets to the point, say they come in to see you and they're already to the point of needing to be on a medication, which uh, I, I guess in the way I'm interpreting that is they already have type 2 diabetes. Is, sure. Is it, is it fair to say that they can eventually get off that medication and still completely reverse type 2? I agree. That's my goal. I tell my patients all the time that we now have a, a journey, a headway, a path of what we need to do. We notice the problems now. Let's start talking about me medication management and lifestyle modification, whether it's exercising more, changing your diet first, or if you're already on a medication like metformin that your primary care has given you, or if you're trying to get on to a GLP-1 receptor agonist. Medication we've all seen on TV, such as Ozempic, to get them on the trend of how we get this approved by their insurance and how to start staying on this medication consistently to lower the weight. The way medications like GLP-1 receptor agonists, like Monjero or Ozempic work, it kind of works at the level of decreasing your hunger and craving, especially right after meals. It also kind of small, it kind of shortens the actual time you're eating as well. When they did research studies itself on how long people eat while they're on the medication itself, they noticed they're actually noticing smaller portion sizes. They get full much, much quicker as well. I tell patients when they're on this medication, when you go out for dinner, it's okay. But notice that if you get a full entree, you're probably gonna be taking leftovers home. So building those good habits, understanding I don't always have to finish my complete meal or finish everything on my plate. It's a common thing I hear from patients that I was just raised that way. Whatever's on my plate, I just need to eat it all the time. As they finish it off, there should be no leftovers. That's not the right mentality. I think when we see that with the medication, they can start to notice, I can't really even finish my meals. I don't get cravings for sugar, especially dessert. It's all about creating when I take this medication away, when they reverse it, or when they get to their weight loss goal, keep those same good routines. Intermittent fasting early in the morning. No eating from 7 p.m. the night before to 11 a.m. the next day. The medication encourages those good lifestyle plans. The funny thing is, people say eating breakfast is a very common routine thing, but do you know where where the actual saying came from where breakfast is the most important meal of the day no i don't surprisingly yeah general mills actually coined that term back in the 1960s and of course they're that huge cereal conglomerate <laughs> it's not something we're being taught that in schools too a good healthy breakfast starts with eating cereal or high grains or high oats and that's what causes a huge insulin spike so i, I encourage people to actually follow a good plan where they're intermittent fasting for lunch if you if you're only meant to eat fast food, that's all you have. Try encourage them to make food at home or meal prep. Take small portions with you. And with between the meals itself, we're not meant to graze as humans. We're not supposed to be eating every single hour. The medication all encourages those good behaviors. And people are kind of shocked about, you know what? When I started the medication, I didn't think it's doable, but it starts to work right away. And I've actually made a lot of changes in the last month. I've dropped five, 10, or even 15 pounds, especially stubborn weight that they've been thinking, I don't think I was able, ever able to lose this before. So it's really great when we encourage good lifestyle modifications and the medications encourage that too. The goal is to eventually get off of meds. I'm a big person on the less meds you're taking, the better your life's really going to be. And the medication itself will get you there. And when we stop the medication itself, you follow the same good routines. And that's why I see people keep their weight off even a year after. So uh, that's phenomenal. One thing I, I do want to ask is I'm, I'm hearing you talk a lot about 
blood sugar levels, insulin levels, and carbs. Um, mm-hmm. Can you can you tie in? Because I, I I've heard you know yes you you should look at your blood sugar levels, but you also really need to look at your insulin levels. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure based on what you're saying, there's a relationship between the two because you certainly don't want those blood sugar spikes. Um, how, no. how is blood sugar influencing your insulin level? And then how are you looking at the insulin level on the Cleveland heart panel? That's a great question. So that's one of the reasons I love the Cleveland heart panel, just because it gives you so much more data than your regular, let's say your primary care annual visit. Most doctors will only look at a hemoglobin A1C. We want to get to the deeper root of what's causing this. Is this insulin resistance? And if it is, I kind of a little bit of a drawing to kind of explain that. So you have two ways your blood sugar will come back down to normal. Regular homeostatic levels where you're eating the right foods, lowering carbs, insulin's not working overtime in order to bring that blood sugar down. Insulin's job actually is actually telling, kind of measuring out how much sugar or carbs you're eating. It kind of calculates that. The pancreas will then release that insulin. Insulin's job is to tell the cells, open up your doors. Sugar is here, use it as energy. When you over flood the system with a lot of carbs, Insulin doesn't have time to actually break it down and say, we need to use it as energy. Instead, let's just convert it to fat. We'll figure it out later. Later, That's why we see a lot of patients that are type 2 diabetic hold a lot of their weight more mid-central. It's called metabolic syndrome. Their pant sizes go up, blood pressure starts to go up, cholesterol numbers start to go up as well. That's all related to insulin going up. Insulin's job is not supposed to work overtime in order to get your blood sugar down to normal. So when you do the Cleveland lab, we see the insulin and your blood glucose that day. If your blood glucose is normal, let's say 85, but your insulin's above 10, especially if you're fasting, that tells me you're starting to work towards insulin resistance. Normal insulin should be under 20, especially if you're fasting. If you just had food, you're like, you know what? I just had a candy bar a few hours ago. That's why I don't recommend doing the blood test right after you eat could, could artificially cause your insulin to go up as it's starting to break down the food itself. So what happens is when we're measuring with the hemoglobin A1C, that is a three month average of your blood sugar. So I have a little drawing right here that goes over what is a red blood cell and what we're measuring. The average red blood cell lasts anywhere between 90 to 120 days. As we measure the actual surface area of that red blood, so we're looking at how much sugar sticks to the cell itself. It's called glycosylation in biochemistry. When sugar sticks to that overall surface area, we're looking for that uh, surface area to be less than 5.5%. If your numbers are above 5.7, according to the American College of, of Endocrinology or the American Diabetes Association, their guidelines state 5.7 to 6.2 is pre-diabetes. That narrow window where you're having so much sugar in the system itself is starting to stick to the red blood cells that's what's going to cause damage. If you don't reverse that pre-diabetes, you get to 6.3% and above, that's full-fledged diabetes. We need mm. to start putting on medication to protect the body. When I say protect the body, what that means is if we look at these sugar molecules where I circled up here, these are going to be the sharp. All right. What we might have to do, um, Pratik, there, okay, he's going to come back in, in just a second, and we will get back to the to the sugar molecules and the hexagon uh graph uh we're going to keep this recording going and as soon as he gets back uh we will we will uh get back to the to the interview here hey bud hey okay so we're, sorry no big deal we got lost connection <laughs> no big deal man we're gonna where i think we we lost you was um, you were describing the the paper um with the with the hexagons uh the hexagons yeah. Uh, so what we'll do is I, I think the paper disrupted the Bluetooth just a tad bit. Uh, if you could, yeah. if you could explain that drawing for us I, yeah. I, and give the listeners a 
uh, an idea of what you're describing here. Of course, yeah, that, we're at the end part of that, that makes sense. So what I was describing on that sheet is when sugar sticks to that red blood cell itself, that hexagon-shaped sugars, imagine those looking like little ninja stars, they're really sharp. Imagine hundreds and thousands of these blood cell molecules going through the bloodstream itself, through the arteries, scratching down the arteries that causing that major inflammation. The repetitive damage over one, five, 10, or even 20 years is what causes the kidneys itself to start failing when it comes to its main job of filtrating the blood itself. That's when you start seeing your GFR or your creatinine numbers start to go up. Your GFR, your filtration number, start to come down. That repetitive damage is actually the number one reason in the US that people are on dialysis, that diabetic damage the sugar that's always so increased the number two reason we have blindness in the u.s outside of macular degeneration is because of diabetic retinopathy damage to the small vessels of the eyes itself causing all that sugar to go up and make, making that damage to the small vessels where either plaque builds up or that inflammation just never goes away it puts you at a higher risk of other complications it's the number one reason why diabetes is the number one associated killer causing heart attacks strokes and stuff like that as well diabetes itself it could lead to more high are higher blood pressures, higher cholesterol numbers, and everything. It's a systemic disease. That's why getting that treated early, especially when it's in that infancy stage of pre-diabetes, that's the goal, starting with medication and turning your life around, understanding what lifestyle modifications really mean. And I think that's where CGM or continuous glucose monitoring and also understanding what you're eating, creating a good plan, and how to actually reverse this is going to be the next steps in knowing what my data on that blood sheet or that blood uh, the blood reports, what that means. How do you how do you know once it's been reversed? So like you yeah, know, so say I come in critique and, and and we're talking and we go through this life lifestyle change and yeah. how do we know? How do we know that we've successfully reversed type two? Of course, yes. When we look at your numbers, when we do that Cleveland panel, we look at that hemoglobin A1C, that three-month average. The American Diabetes Association, the American College of Endocrinology, all looks at that number to see, are you going to be labeled as a diabetic or not? When we see your numbers at, let's say, 6.2%, that narrow window of pre-diabetes, and let's say we go through all that lifestyle modification, you start losing weight, you use the CGMs and realize, I need to cut out X, Y, and Z out of my diet. We make those efforts, and let's say in three months, you come back, and you're like, I've lost 15 pounds, I really cut out whatever you told me, I'm exercising in the gym now, working with a trainer, even something simple as I go on a walk after dinner, I'm making those changes, we can redraw your blood work in three months and see what your numbers look at. And if your A1C then drops below 5.7, I'm satisfied to say we've really reversed your risk of becoming a diabetic. I do the same thing with my patients that are on those GLP-1s, that Ozempic, and their A1C is at 7.8 or 8.5, I tell them, we really cannot get to the point where we need to be on insulin. They make those changes every three to six months, I'll check their A1C again, I see that gradual decline from, let's say, 7.8 to 6.5, 6.5 to 6.2, 6.2 down to, let's say, 5.4. That's on thinking, you know, we really reverse the risk of diabetes. We could talk more about, you know what, getting you off a lot of these meds. The, I see a ton of patients that come in. They're on six different medications. They're on high cholesterol meds, two medications for their blood pressure, another two medications probably for their diabetes, and maybe another one for pain because they have neuropathy or something like that. Losing weight, reversing those risks itself could really start telling me, you know what, your A1C is back to normal. Let's start actually lowering your blood pressure medication and getting you off some of these meds too. Like I said, tell my, family, my goal for me is to reverse your diabetes, but also help the other factors that are getting worse as well. And we're actually getting you off some of these meds. That's when I use a lot of supplements itself, such as garlic or garlic extract to help kind of decrease their blood pressure naturally and also take care of their cholesterol numbers. That's amazing. And, and, and one thing that, that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of 
uh, feeling like a listener or someone watching on YouTube might be feeling right now is like, you know, gosh, the dangers of, of having prediabetes and type 2 diabetes are immense, especially if you don't know it's happening. What are, mm-hmm. what, are, what are some signs that someone might have prediabetes and really needs to uh, start some of these lifestyle changes? Are, are most people coming in first for weight loss? They recognize that I want to get some of this weight off. And then, you know, you see the insulin numbers, the blood sugar level numbers, and you're like, you're prediabetes. Is that kind of how it works? Um, I'm just I would kinda, agree. Okay. Most people come in or that could come in first saying, you know what, I need to lose a lot of weight. And I'm like, let's see what's causing this weight gain. Is it hormones and that's what's out of whack? Or is it more like your insulin numbers? We check their A1C, we check all that through the Cleveland panel. We see that we're like, wow, I know you came in for weight loss, but you're actually at a really close realm of becoming diabetic. And for many of these patients, maybe the first time their primary care is like actually never told them that, but the first time they're actually hearing this saying, hey, I never knew that. And then we focused in on that. Of course, the weight loss will come and it's mostly going to be related to lifestyle management. And they'll realize as I'm losing weight, I'm also helping my risk of diabetes. Mm -hmm. I do see a lot of patients that come in saying, you know, my parents are diabetic. My grandparents were. I just want to get checked out and see, like, am I going to be diabetic in the future? I'm like, there's no real test to tell that. But let's check your blood sugar. Let's see what your lifestyles look like. Based on those numbers alone, I can start making a decision saying, you know what, based on what you're telling me during this small interview, seeing patients, I'm like, it looks like you may be becoming insulin resistant. You're complaining of getting tired all the time. My pants size in the last year started to go up. I was just recently diagnosed with high blood pressure. These are giving me little clues that you have a very, very high risk of increasing or, or very high risk of increasing of either high blood sugar and insulin resistance or diabetes entirely. Interesting. It's just a fascinating uh, concept in that, you know, if you, if you try to get the weight off, you know, how many other things, uh, get better mm-hmm. in, in that Agreed. effort, you know, Agreed. And, and, uh, but I, ha- I have to say, Pratik, you have successfully convinced me that you can in fact reverse type two diabetes. And, and I, I have a feeling that the people watching, uh, this episode will agree with me. Don't go away. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode of the podcast. Uh, Please share the podcast with your friends. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. Uh, We will see you guys next time.